Speaking of kids, do you know that phase that toddlers go through uh, where they continually and constantly ask why? It's like, uh, it's time to get in the car, get in your car seat. Why? Because it's time to go home. Why? Because we have to make dinner and go to bed. Why? It's like, because mommy said so. That's why. Right? Eventually you get to that point. Well, I never grew out of that phase. I'm someone who has always questioned things. I just, that's just part of my personality. I question why people do things, why people say certain things, why, especially why people believe certain things. And I know that some of my professors absolutely hated me. I know this. Um, I know this because one of them would make a conscious effort to avoid me when he saw me outside of the classroom. And it's because, you know, when he said things that I didn't understand or wanted to learn more about, I was always that student that was like, tell me more. And one time at least, uh, he tried to say that men and women both reflect the image of God. And I raised my hand and I said, that's not what your wife wrote in her book, Beyond the Curse. And he was like, uh, you must be mistaken. And I was like, well, actually I have my copy right here. And I opened it to the part that I underlined, I read it out loud. And he looked like he wanted to throw something at me. So I have this curiosity habit. I, um, you know, I, I want to know why Christians do the things that they do, right? Especially in corporate worship, right? I'm like a cultural anthropologist. Especially when I was a new Christian, I was like, why do they sing, why do they love guitars so much? Why do, why do white evangelicals love guitars? And why do they hold their hands up like that, right? Like, what's this mean? What's that mean? You know? That's why I like this chart. It's very helpful. <laughs> because what I learned very early on, and what I believe very passionately, is that everything we do, the practices that we participate in, even unconsciously, are forming us. They're making us the people who we are. Every day in a thousand little ways, we are formed by the practices in which we participate. I recently uh, contributed a chapter to a book that's going to be published soon. And the book is called The HTML of Cruciform Love. Cruciform means cross-shaped. And it's towards a theology of the internet. And I contributed a chapter called The Bible is Not a Database. And basically, I reflected on how our practices, my practices, of using technology are shaping the way I think, and especially how I think about the Bible. So how I access the Bible, like through a smartphone or through a website, is making me think differently about the Bible. And I reflected on this, this experience that I had once. Maybe you can relate to this. Uh, one time in my house, I lost my, my keys. And instead of thinking initially, I should retrace my steps, my brain went, you should run a search for it. And for like a, like a couple seconds, my brain was convinced that like everything in my house was indexed on a database somewhere, and I could just type in keys and it would be like they're under the cushion. And then I was like, wait a second, that's not how life works, right? You snap out of it. But what that taught me was that how I am thinking is being rewired by the practices that I participate in which I search for things every day. I type in keys and, you know, keys pop up, right? So you've heard me say this a bunch of times, and I'm, you're probably going to hear me say it a bunch of times more, but embodied practices 
are formative. They form us. They're making us think a certain way and live a certain way. It's shaping our way of being in the world. And so, by far, the most confusing curiosity-invoking practice that Christians do, when I was a new Christian, you know, exploring this, this faith and asking questions, by far the most bizarre one was communion. Also known as the Lord's Supper, also known as the Eucharist. Why do Christians do this? What is this chiclet-looking thing? Is this supposed to be bread? Why do we drink from a little tiny thimble of juice, right? Like thousands of little cups of juice. Uh, what is this styrofoam thing, wafer thing? What's that, right? Um, why grape juice, not wine? If Jesus drank wine, why do some Christians think it's wrong to drink wine? Like all kinds of questions. What does transubstantiation mean? What does consubstantiation mean? Big questions, right? I've had all the questions. I still have questions. But my views on communion have evolved a lot over the years. Uh, I think some of you heard me say that as a young Christian, I was very suspicious of traditional worship practices. I called them like dead rituals. Those are dead rituals, right? And I was very antagonistic towards these practices. And that's changed a lot for me. I've come to a place in my life and as a, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, where I actually believe that communion is central to our corporate worship as the body of Christ. Central. And I've come to believe that what we, what we believe about communion says a lot about what we believe about God and about what we believe about the church and about the world. So as we continue in this series, we're still in this series, called Adore, where we are learning about passionately loving God. We're going to look at a story from the New Testament that I'm hoping will help us see that communion is more than a ritual, but a central, formative worship practice that deeply connects us to God and to each other. But before we dive into our passage, would you join me in a prayer for the Spirit's illumination? Holy God, Word made flesh. Let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our heart with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great expectation. And all God's people said, amen. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, there's this story. And it's about two disciples. One of them gets named in the story. That's Cleopas. And one of them does not get named. And these two disciples have witnessed the ministry of Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. And they've also witnessed the crucifixion. And now they've heard from some female disciples that the tomb where Jesus was laid is empty. But they don't believe it. And so they are returning home to a village called Emmaus. And while they're on this road to Emmaus, a stranger joins them and asks them what they're talking about. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, in verse 17. So you can follow along if you have your own translation of the Bible. 
And if you're accessing it through a smartphone, remember what I said, the Bible's not a database. But you can follow along in your own translation. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard, Standard Version. Starting in verse 17. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still and looked, and looked sad. Then one of them said, Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? And he asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of our women have astounded us. They, have, they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of, us who were with, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things, then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we was while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, Jesus, had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. So, these two disciples were deeply disappointed. They had had their hopes dashed. They felt defeated. They were not sure what to do next. So, they went home. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the kind of Messiah that was going to defeat their pagan enemies and liberate Israel. More specifically, they were looking for a military warrior messiah, like Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, who was the Jewish hero who routed the Greek Syrians 160 years before Jesus was born. And interestingly, his most famous battle where he defeated the Greeks was the Battle of Emmaus. So from their perspective, Jesus 
was a failed Messiah. Messiahs don't get crucified. That's, that's the opposite of what you want your Messiah to do. You want your Messiah to win and crucify the bad guys. So their hopes and dreams of political freedom were destroyed. And this is also Peter's problem too, remember? Peter was the first one to declare Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Jesus blessed Peter and said the father revealed this to him. But right after that, Jesus was teaching that he must die. He must suffer and die and rise again. And what did Peter say? Never, Lord. That shall never happen to you. So Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. So you and I, on a lot of levels, can completely relate with the Eumaeus disciples and Peter, can't we? In our human frailty, it's really easy, very common and very easy, to turn Jesus into a kind of genie or a weapon to do the things that we want him to do. If Jesus doesn't eradicate all the obstacles in our lives, we can easily feel like Jesus failed us. This week I've been reading a really good book that I would highly recommend. It's called... 12 Lies That Hold America Captive and the Truth That Sets Us Free. It's by Jonathan Walton, who is an African-American intervarsity leader in New York. And in one of the chapters, he's talking about the kind of power that white American folk religion has taught him to expect from Jesus. And I think he captures the disappointment of the Eumaeus disciples. I think he captures it really well. He says, it makes no sense to have a leader have their leaders suffer shame, humiliation, violence, and death. This is not a win for the Israelites against the violent oppression of the Romans. It was another humiliating loss. Similarly, I'm confounded by a Jesus that doesn't form a posse, collect weapons, and fight back. That's the kind of disappointment that the Emmaus disciples had. And that's us too. In the Western world, for hundreds of years, Christians have wrestled with the temptation to view Jesus as a means to our own ends. Going all the way back to the 4th century, when the Emperor Constantine baptized the Roman Empire and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then he proceeded to continue conquering people, only this time he conquered them under the sign of the cross, with no irony whatsoever. Think about that. Cross, Jesus, crucified. We're going to go crucify some more people. Jesus is even used today to prop up white supremacy and nationalism. Isn't that crazy? For a long time, there's been this unholy union, a marriage between governments and Christianity. It's called Christendom. But now, we are living in a post-Christendom world. That kind of government-Christianity alignment is crumbling all over the world, especially the Western world. Christendom wanted Jesus to wield the sword, fight for their country, and win wars for them. But that form of religion is losing market share very rapidly. Do you guys know about the nuns? Nuns are people with no religious affiliation. And it's the most rapidly growing group in America. 
Pastor Brian Zahn talks about this post-Christendom disappointment. And he surprisingly links it to the communion table. Listen to this. What both Eumaeus disciples wanted was a conventional king on a throne of political power. What they got was broken bread on the communion table. The false hope for the kingdom of Christ to be one of conventional political power was always bound to disappoint those who fail to understand the true nature of this new kingdom. Whether it's the Eumaeus Road Disciples, the architects of Christendom, or the modern day religious right. Jesus will not be with us as a means of conventional political power. Jesus will be with us as bread on the table. Christ is present as a sacramental mystery, not a political action committee. Blessed are those who are not disappointed. There's a corporate sense in which human beings are disappointed in a God who isn't a means to our own ends, a means of control, a means of amassing wealth, a means of protection, a means of delivering the American dream. But I'm also glad that Luke doesn't name that other disciple so that you and I can put ourselves in that disciple's shoes. And we can imagine ourselves feeling a personal sense of disappointment. We often make Jesus into the kind of Messiah that we need to accomplish our goals, to attain the things that we desire. And that's how we often set ourselves up for disappointment. But Jesus meets us in ways that are surprising and sometimes confounding. He was with them at the table. He took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus is revealed to these disciples when Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them to eat. This is a powerful statement about the way that we encounter Jesus through worship. The early Christian communities that distributed the Gospel of Luke, they read this out loud in their communities. And even though Jesus had ascended decades before that, they were convinced that Jesus was still present with them in the bread and the cup. And it's through this embodied practice that the church is taught that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us, present with us in times of need. So at the center of Christian worship, at the center of our worship as a community, is the embodied practice of meeting with Jesus in the bread and the cup. But I know that this raises all kinds of questions. It did for me. I'm the one that never grew out of that phase of asking why. And so I'm always asking, how, does, how is Jesus present in the bread and the cup? What do we mean when we say that the bread is the body of Christ and the cup is the blood of Christ? When I was a new follower of Jesus, I was particularly suspicious of what I considered spooky explanations of this, this communion thing. I, was, uh, I considered myself very rational, and I considered those explanations irrational. I was content to believe that communion is merely a remembrance. It's something we do to remind ourselves that Jesus died for us, and nothing more than that. But if I'm honest, and I always try to be honest, if I'm honest, 
that understanding of the Lord's Supper diminished my experience of it. It made it seem a lot less important. And this view of the, the remembrance view, it kept crashing up against my reading of the Bible. The more I read the New Testament and the more I read about the early church and their experience of communion, the more I felt like I was missing something. Why did they think it was so important and I don't? For example, Paul reserved some of his harshest words for the church at Corinth because they practiced communion wrong. Remember that? There were these class and cultural divisions in the church at Corinth. And those class and cultural divisions, they bled into how they practiced communion. And Paul was livid about that. He said, you are not even eating the Lord's Supper when you do it like that. And he said, you're sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Paul took communion really seriously. And when I had the, the remembrance view, I didn't. So I'm like, why did he take it so seriously? Here's what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So for Paul, this meal was not merely a reminder of what Jesus had done. It was a participation. It was a sharing in Christ's life. And it was a making one of the body of Christ. It had power to connect us to God and to one another. So I've come to believe that this practice is more than just a reminder. It's a way that God reveals God's self to us in a very real and tangible way. We can feel it. We can touch it. We can taste it. We ingest it. It goes into us. I like what N.T. Wright said. This, this, this quote has stuck with me for many, many years. N.T. Wright said this. When Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give a theory he didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. And the more I thought about this, the more it makes sense. Because throughout the story of the Bible, God has shown up in this way. In a way that creates fellowship. Through the sharing of a meal. Abraham once shared a meal with three strangers. And the text says he ate with God. And then there's the meal that God instituted for the children of Israel led out of slavery called Passover. This is a meal that reminds them and represents for them their salvation. Their actual, physical, real salvation. And think about the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was characterized by what, by what people call radical hospitality. Jesus ate with people who were on the margins, who had been formerly excluded from the synagogue, the community of the people of God. He ate with them. He sat down with them. And this was more than a ritual. This was a way of inviting them into his life. This is important because we've seen what happens when Christian faith is reduced to a set of beliefs. Right? We've seen professing Christians justify some of the most grotesque injustices. 
Because intellectually affirming one thing, abstract principles about God, and loving and caring about real people in fellowship are two completely different things. You can do one without doing the other. And we've seen that time and time again. So it's important that we recover the fact that Christian faith isn't merely a list of doctrines that we check off. It's a way of life. It's an invitation into the life of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we don't worship a theory about God or ideas about God. We worship the God who became flesh and blood. And we have to recover the scandalous nature of that claim. It is quite provocative. It says that in this world, this secular world, we believe some things are truly sacred. We, we, don't, we don't let our sacred beliefs, our sacred practices become scooby-dooified. Remember that word? The sacred things that we practice are not masks for greed or ulterior motives. They aren't, uh, they aren't just cover-ups for our, our other ways of doing things. Christians believe that God has become flesh and blood in Jesus, and because of that, God has reconciled humanity to God's self. So, here's, here's something else Brian Zahn said about this secular world that we're living in. For the, secular, for the secularist, the sacred is mere symbol. But to this idea, the Christian doctrine of the incarnation offers a resounding no. If we believe that the word became flesh and lived among us, then we believe in a sacred ontology. That's a big word that just means being. A sacredness of being. The more deeply that we are influenced by the sacred mystery of the incarnation, that God became human, the more seriously we will take the sacraments of baptism and communion. In a secular age, the Enlightenment-influenced church desperately needs to recover the sacred through a return to sacrament. In the bread and the cup, God meets with us and makes us one just as the blood, the flesh and blood of Jesus, God met with us and made us one. The God that Christians believe in is a fleshy God. A fleshy God. You like that? <laughs> a God who eats and drinks and dances. I'm presuming that he danced like the wedding of Cana, right? I'm presuming he danced at the wedding of Cana because later he brought out the good wine, right? So, this is a scandalous belief that Christians have. A God who mucks around in matter, the material world. A God who shows up in physical and tangible ways. That's what the sacraments are all about. They're a physical connection to God and to one another. And I think this is really important for another reason. Because much of what passes for Christianity today is escapist. It's dualistic. Let's escape from these horrible bodies and this horrible physical world that we live in. Let's go away to, you know, cloud land and just float among the harps and the angels. It's escapist and dualistic. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith has more to do with how we live in this world in an embodied way. That's why I love this passage from Jonathan Martin's book, Prototype. If you haven't read this book, highly recommend it. 
He has a way with words, very poetic. He says, this movement of new humanity, that's Christianity, this movement of new humanity is a protest against the body-defying, world-denying principalities and powers that threaten to swallow us up. This is a resistance to religion that is less substantial than the taste of crusty bread and sweet wine. It's in favor of skin, in favor of laughter, in favor of music, in favor of sweat. It's in favor of nakedness, but in protest to pornography. It's in favor of touch, but in protest to being handled. It's in favor of the soul, but in protest to its dismemberment from the body. That's the physical, fleshy, flesh and blood God that we worship. And communion is a central worship practice that teaches us about this God. Like the Emmaus Road disciples, Jesus is made known to us in the breaking of the bread. And so, of course, there's only one proper way to conclude a message like this. I'm going to invite Oshida to join me, and I want to invite you to the Lord's table.